Choose Linux, episode 18, for September 19th, 2019. Hello and welcome to the show that captures the excitement of discovering Linux. I'm Joe. I'm Drew. And I'm Mel. And here we are for episode 18. And before we get started, we've got to talk about the two new shows that were launched last week on the network. LinuxHeadlines.show, which is Linux and open source headlines, five days a week in under three minutes. And Drew, you're going to be doing one day a week. Uh, That's right. I will be doing Fridays and uh, be kind of in the hot seat for if anybody needs to take off any other day. Yeah, and I might well be standing in, but otherwise it's Wes and Chris. So yeah, yeah, LinuxHeadlines.show, check that out. And also SelfHosted.show. And that is Chris and Alex talking about self-hosting all the things. And I think you might be making an appearance as well on that show on one episode, Drew. Uh, yes, I was there for one of the interviews that will be in a future episode. Yeah, it's a show all about not relying on the cloud, not necessarily anti-cloud, but hosting as much stuff as you possibly can yourself. So check that one out as well, selfhosted.show. So let's talk about getting people into Linux, getting other people, that is. I'm sure that all of us have converted at least one or two people to Linux, but there's quite a lot to consider when you do that. Well, I know that this topic came up for us when I was kind of playing around with the idea of getting my son his first computer. You know, he's turning 13, so I'm thinking, all right, maybe you can have a little bit more kind of leeway with what you have access to in your room. But at the same time, I didn't want to make a big investment because he's still a kid. Things still get broken and lost. And so I kind of went back to that original mindset I used to have that you could kind of, I guess, bring back any old hardware, you know, back to life if you just put Linux on it. And Cheese, or Adam, gave me one of his old laptops, and I was thinking, this is going to be great. Like, I'll just put a minimal install on there, and I kind of turned to you guys and went, how do I even get started with picking which Linux distro to go to? You know, I had talked about doing LightOS, and Joe, I know you're a huge fan of Zubuntu. And it's funny, because even after all the distro hopping that we've done, I couldn't come to a conclusion on where to start. The first thing you really have to think about when you're coming into this kind of situation where you have somebody that you think is a good candidate for using Linux is what is their use case? You know, is this for somebody who's, uh, you know, tech savvy or for somebody who's maybe a beginner to computers entirely? Are they old? Are they young? Do they have preconceived notions about what the desktop should be? All of these can kind of factor in to really force you to consider what you're going to recommend for them. After the last few episodes that we've been doing, I kind of have brought up the fact that the older laptop that we had in the house is still using Endless OS. And originally, I kind of wanted to go with Endless because I thought, well, this is a distribution he already knows. But to be honest, what stopped me was I was thinking, you know, I need to take him away from the ease of use where it's just an icon and click and actually start pushing him to learn a little bit more about the computer. So I started thinking, what can I do that can run on this laptop that's kid-friendly and still kind of incorporates a little bit of command line, a little bit of learning? And I think it's a rabbit hole that when you start bringing in all the variables can get really dangerous to go down. Am I the only one that's kind of on that page? Oh, no, I see exactly what you mean. But I think that it being kid-friendly, I think that that, is a bit of a myth, really. And I know there's been a lot of distros aimed at younger kids and stuff, but I think 
really, if you're old enough to use a computer, you're old enough to use it. And and whether you are 12 or 13, all the way up to, you know, pensioners, I don't think that you should necessarily cater it for their age. I think that there's more considerations than that. Well, take my dad, for example. He's been a hobbyist for a long, long time. And so he's more advanced than your average 65-year-old. So I would probably recommend something a little different for him versus somebody who really only uses a computer for Internet Explorer and that's it, right? So there's so many facets to really consider. And yeah, I don't think that we could just say, oh, well, this demographic needs this or this demographic needs that. Uh, it's, it's tricky. So let me tell you something that happened to me that really gave me pause in making a distro decision for someone else. So when I was a young Linux admin a few years ago, I had this mindset of, well, everybody should be using Linux. And it's just easier when they ask me to help them with their computer if they're running something that I know. So I made the drive down to see my parents. Now, I've talked a little bit about this in other shows, but my parents, you know, grew up in Mexico. They didn't own computers. Our, their first computer probably was after I got out of high school. And so I said, okay, we're going to put you on Corora because it was a distribution that I knew well. It was close enough to Fedora that other people around our community could help them as well. And about a year after I made that decision, Corora is no longer a distro. It's no longer supported. So now I'm having to go over to their house, change it to the distribution, trying to work on backups and trying to explain what happened, how it happened and why their computer doesn't look the same when they're going, well, why didn't we just, you know, use what the computer came with, which was Windows. Well, and that story really illustrates the point that I make, which is go for a mainstream distro because as much as the smaller ones do have a lot to offer, if you're setting this up for someone else, then if that distro goes away, in, like in the case of Corora, then you have to deal with exactly what you've just talked about, L. Whereas if you set them up on Fedora or Ubuntu or Debian or something, then it's pretty unlikely that those distros are going to go away. And so you're not likely to have that problem. I mean, for us, okay, if I was using Ubuntu and then suddenly that project just stopped going for some reason, I could move to Manjaro or Debian with XFCE and, you know, I'm technical enough and experienced enough to, to be able to deal with that. But if you're supporting someone else, then I would always say go for something that's at least as close to a mainstream distro as you possibly can. Yeah, I would tend to agree with that. I think the stability and longevity of a project is a very, very important consideration because you do want something that's going to be minimal hassle and has a lot of available packages and a lot of available options for how you set it up. So to me, you know, Ubuntu probably makes the most sense for most people, but there are choices that you're going to make there, like is it Ubuntu or Kubuntu or Zubuntu? You get kind of where I'm going with that. Well, clearly the answer is Ubuntu LTS every single time for every person on the planet. <laughs> Okay, so here's an issue that I ran to that, you know what, that wouldn't have been a solution. And honestly, I'm not sure what it is, because my kids are in public school, and the public school ends up buying different, you know, software and applications that they're supposed to use to help them with their reading and their math, and they get homework that they have to do at home on these apps. Well, recently, one of them supported Windows, and it supported Mac. 
We have neither of these computers at home. So now I have to go up to the school and explain how myself, who works in tech, can't let her kids do their homework at home because it's not supported. (laughs) It was embarrassing. I can't have to admit it. Well, yeah, I mean, that goes to the whole point of, is Linux even right for everyone? Well, clearly not. If someone says to you that, you know, they are a professional video editor using Avid, you're not going to recommend Linux to them because Avid's not available. Yeah, and once you start getting into the business world, there are a lot more considerations to make where Linux probably isn't the right choice just because businesses have not traditionally been targeting Linux as a platform for business class applications. I do think that's starting to change, but I don't think we're at a point yet where we could even really start moving industry professionals in our direction just yet. I think we've had this conversation before because the solution that just keeps coming to my mind is our transition away from OS to applications, right? If we have things like the App Store or Snap packages that just make it easy to install whatever application across any platform when you just don't care about the OS, it makes it a lot easier for us not to care if, you know, you're on a Mac and I'm using Windows and Joe is using Linux, we can all still work together. And I don't maybe that's a pipe dream, but can we just get to that point, please? <laughs> well, the doc that we're looking at for this show is in Google Docs, right? And all you need is a browser for that. And so we're already there. Well, for some, but like I said, you know, back to the original beginning of all this is, you know, I guess proprietary type applications where, you know, schools are buying into them, business are buying into them, and it's not cross-platform. I mean, don't even get me started on gaming, right? Well, that's true. Yeah, although that story is getting better, but yeah, generally speaking, anyone serious about gaming is still using Windows. But... You know, Joe does have a really good point there in that rich web applications really are starting to take over. And between Snaps, Flatpaks, and let's face it, Electron, there are way more options for getting software onto as many Linux distributions as possible than ever before. And combine that with those web apps and the landscape is definitely getting a lot better. So I'd like to get your opinion on how do I have this conversation? So I go to my mom, you know, I sit down with her, I start explaining to her, hey, we're going to have to change your computer over to Fedora, have the conversation about what happened, and then have to explain to her why she's limited to what applications she can use. Maybe I did it wrong. Maybe I should have let them stay on Windows. You know, it's just a difficult conversation to broach with, and I hesitate to say non-technical people, but people who perhaps aren't using technology as often as we are. Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. And can I just bring up uh, dual booting? And if I'm going to convert someone to Linux and they have an existing machine that has Windows on it, then the first thing I do is shrink that Windows partition, check that that's working all right, and then install Linux. And it will by default boot into Linux, but they always have that option to go back into Windows if there's anything that they need to. And so that's kind of the security blanket. I mean, ideally, they will never need to boot into that. But I think you do have to leave that there for them, just in case. I have to admit, that's a concept I'd not thought of. Okay, so now that I guess I have a little bit of a solution with dual boot and, you know, choosing an OS, transitioning, 
comes the next problem. And it's the one that I'm going to be completely transparent and honest with you guys I'm still fighting with. So the ThinkPad that Adam gave me is a bit of older hardware. And when I started talking to you both about it, you know, which Linux distribution, you started breaking it to me that, you know what, I might not want to set my kid up for failure because with two gigs of RAM and no solid state drive, I should have thought this through a little bit. And I've been playing with it anyways, just to see what I can get going with it. And I have to admit that actually having it boot a Linux distribution is not as simple as just going in, changing the BIOS to legacy, because it's still erroring out every single time I try to do the install. That's quite surprising for an old ThinkPad, because Linux compatibility has always been one of the strong points there. So yeah, I don't know why it's not working for you. Maybe it's just too old. Is that a thing? Is that a thing now? Like hardware can be too old to run the newer distributions of Linux? Well, I've got a very, very old ThinkPad from, well, it came with Windows 95. So it's an A20M for anyone who uh, cares about that. And this is seriously old. I think it's got 512 megabytes of RAM in it and, uh, or maybe even 256. And you can boot, you know, those specialist distros like Tiny Core or Puppy or whatever, but anything Debian or Fedora-based or Ubuntu-based, forget about it. It's just not going to boot. It just doesn't have the resources, certainly to boot into a live session. On top of that, a lot of distributions have gotten rid of 32-bit builds. They're still supporting 32-bit software in their libraries, but only for multi-lib installations. If you're somehow still running a 32-bit x86 chip, your options for distributions are really, really limited now. Yeah, I um, managed to salvage an old netbook that's 32-bit only fairly recently. And I I kind of made a point of trying different 32-bit distros on it. And although, I I don't know, I don't think it's fair to say that you are very limited because there are so many Linux distros out there. But you are much more limited than with with 64-bit, obviously. But I just couldn't get anything to work well enough to actually be usable on it. So I think that even if you can find a distro, unless you're looking to use it as a server or something like that, then forget about it, really, if it's that old. And to be fair, I'm pretty sure that you can get Debian to run on a toaster if you really try. (laughs) Yeah, probably. So what is the advice that you guys would give if, like, let's say, you know what, I'm going to try this again, but... I'm on a limited income. I don't want to spend a lot of money, first of all, because I don't know if this laptop is going to survive this kid. Second of all, it's just not where my priorities are right now. What are the performance issues I should be looking at? What is the baseline hardware that I can get away with and still provide a good experience? I would say an SSD is a must, really, at this point. You do not want to be installing an operating system on what we call spinning rust. I think that it's just too frustrating. No matter what the other hardware you have, I think that has got to be your baseline now. Even, you know, a relatively cheap one, you can get 120 gigabytes for £20 or $20 at this point. And and so there's not really any excuse for not upgrading that. I have two recommendations. The first one is if you have significantly more time than money, a Raspberry Pi is a pretty attractive offering these days. The Raspberry Pi 4 is pretty powerful, and yes, it runs a little hot, so you may need to get some kind of case for it or something, but if you have an old monitor and keyboard lying around, or you're willing to spend a little extra money and get one of those fancy Pi laptops or little integrated desktop systems, it's a reasonable 
computer that you could put in for somebody, especially somebody who's starting to learn about computing and might be interested in digging a little deeper. I mean, that's kind of why Raspberry Pi was started in the first place, right? Well, that's true. And I would say if education is a priority, then that is a perfectly fine recommendation. But if you're looking at just general usage, people want a laptop. They want just an you know an all-in-one experience. They don't want to have to be tethered to a screen and power and everything. So I, I don't think that for, for general school use or whatever, a Raspberry Pi is appropriate, really. Even in one of those laptop things, I just think that the performance just isn't great, really. I think you, you should be looking at an, an old ThinkPad, generally. Not quite as old as the one that you have been given, Al, but and you know, an old X220 or something like that is, is probably your best bet. Well, thank you for stealing my second uh, <laughs> recommendation there, Joe. Uh, but to tack on to that a little bit, ThinkPads are really great in that they are in a lot of corporate leases. And when those leases run out, you will frequently find lots of them being sold on eBay. And when I say lots, I not only mean a large amount, but also specific lots of like 20 to 100 of these shipping at once. And if you can find somebody who's purchased that and is reselling, you can find ThinkPads, older ThinkPads, and even not that old ThinkPads for half, 75% off. I mean, the prices just plummet. Yeah, and because they've been used in the enterprise space, they've generally been well looked after because there's a moody IT person frowning at them if they you know, spill coffee in it or whatever. But I think that the the amount of RAM, I think four gigabytes, absolute minimum these days, eight is nice depending on the use case. I would disagree. I'd say eight is the minimum these days. And I'll tell you why. Those rich web apps that we were discussing earlier take more and more RAM all the time. I mean, just loading up something like Google Docs can really tax your RAM. I haven't recommended a laptop with under eight gigabytes of RAM in four years. Yeah, that's fair enough. But then again, you are a GNOME user. You know, I'm sitting here on XFCE <laughs> using significantly less than you are. But yeah, I think you're probably right. You want to be looking at around eight gigabytes of RAM. And I think that's an important point to make because a lot of the complaints that I hear from Linux users when we start talking about the hardware are generally saying, well, four gigs of RAM is enough, but they're complaining that things are running slow. And I'm thinking, that's not the distribution. That's your computer. But that's not something they're willing to hear. Yeah. So before I started working at Jupiter Broadcasting, I was doing support, right? IT support. And four gigs of RAM is not enough on Mac. It's not enough on Windows. And we didn't have any clients with Linux, but I could say from personal experience, I didn't think it was enough. Granted, I'm a power user running lots of stuff all the time. But even for just standard web browsing, I, I just can't recommend four gigs anymore. Yeah, I think you might be right. So as for the processor in it, the CPU, it's very important to look at the model number of that CPU, I think, and then look up the benchmarks for it. If you say you've, you've got an old ThinkPad that's, I don't know, uh, 2230M or something, that's the model number of the CPU, put that into Google with Benchmark and you'll come up with a site called CPU Benchmark and that'll give you the Passmark score. And Passmark is software that's only available for Windows, I think. But you know, it, it's going to give you an idea of 
how powerful that processor is relative to other ones. And so you can look at machines that you already have and, and find out the, the model number, look up that, and it might be you know, a score of, say, 4,000 or something. And then if you're looking at another machine to buy, you can see that model of processor, see what that score is. And okay, it's not going to be, you know, it's not necessarily scientific because cooling plays a, a large part and whatever, but it will give you a general idea of how good something is. And, you know, there's some atoms and celerons that are like under a thousand and they just, just forget about it. They're just terrible. I think you're really looking at about three or four thousand minimum um, to, to get normal stuff done. I mean, if you're lucky enough to have, you know, a modern ThinkPad, you might be looking at eight or nine thousand score, or my desktop machine gets like thirteen or fourteen thousand, I think. Um, but then I've got an old Chromebook that is like fifteen hundred or something, and that is pretty sluggish. Without going down the rabbit hole here too much, the other consideration to think about is if you need a lot of battery life, the generation of chipset that you buy is really going to play into that as well. Yeah, definitely. Because even though you might have a more powerful in terms of performance, it might be sucking a lot more battery life out of it. And for me, generally with my laptops, I move them from A to B, then set up with the power. And, you know, I don't use them on battery, but for some people, I would imagine, especially for kids, that's probably much more important, especially kids who are used to phones and tablets that have like all day battery life. Okay, so we've already established that me taking donated hardware is probably not the way to go. So where should I start? You know, is this, hey, let's walk into Best Buy, buy a laptop that already has Windows on it, and you know, I guess just dual boot or completely kick it over? Or do I go to Goodwill, where I know that Drew has donated half of his machines to? <laughs> well, I don't know about Goodwill, but um, for me in the UK, it's either eBay or Gumtree, which is our equivalent of your Craigslist, I think, um, which can obviously be hit and miss, and you have to be careful and you know follow a basic procedure or whatever. But if you look in secondhand, then they're the two main places I would look. As far as buying hardware in the U.S., there are a couple of places that I really like. Uh, I mentioned eBay before for the uh, corporate leases, which is a great spot. I've gotten some really good computers off of there. Another place is Craigslist, like Joe's Gumtree. And there's a third, which I'm not sure if you have it in the U.K., Joe, but it's worth checking out if you do. It's uh, called Swappa, S-W-A-P-P-A dot com. And... It is a direct sell website where you can list your own devices. It started out for cell phones, but they're doing uh, computers now as well. And it's pretty good. I mean, you have to verify things before they're shipped out. And it's a little safer to me than, say, Craigslist. And uh, I don't know. I've had some good successes there. I had heard of this and I've just looked it up now and it seems to be US only, unfortunately. Ah, that's a shame. Well, Al, you've talked about relative success with your parents and I know I've had some successes and some failures. What about you, Drew? You must have converted some people. You know, I have had some successes moving people over, uh, primarily on laptops or netbooks back in the day when uh, people's computers had crashed and they needed something to be able to get online as their primary goal, uh, you know, set them up with Ubuntu or some other distro that was fairly easy to use and included a nice easy update mechanism and they're off to the races. 
I never even really got any troubleshooting calls from most of them. It, for the most part, it was just, oh, yeah, here's Chrome. Okay, I'm, I'm good to go. Yeah, that's generally been the case with me, I would say. I can think of at least a few people who I've set up and they've just got on with it and I, I see them when I see them, you know, in general life about other things and ask them how it's going and make sure they're doing the updates and everything. And so you're right, I, I generally don't hear from them much. But those people are the kind of people who are using almost only the web browser and you install Chrome for them or get them going on Firefox and you generally don't hear from them. Where I've had my failures, that's people who have more complex needs, I think. People who try and see what else it can do. You know, that kind of mindset. People who want to start tinkering but don't really know enough about it and end up breaking things. Or people who have unusual use cases, wanting to plug into external peripherals and and stuff that aren't necessarily supported 100% and and then start complaining, oh, Linux is terrible because I plug my Mac into this screen and it just works perfectly. So I'd like to share a story of kind of a 50-50 success. And that's with my wife, Jackie. She has a ThinkPad convertible laptop where it's got the, the touch-sensitive screen and the stylus and all of that. And it's a ThinkPad, but it's you know, one that's sort of closer to the prosumer market than a standard ThinkPad is, right? And she has it dual booting Windows and Ubuntu, and she's a graphic artist. So she does need to be able to do things like draw on the screen and that sort of thing. That's why she got this particular laptop. And for the most part, it just works. She's in Ubuntu on that laptop most of the time, whereas on her desktop, she uses Windows because it has all of the things that she's used to, and that's it's where she's comfortable there, right? And that's fine. And in Linux, she has tried things like Krita and GIMP, and she knows she hates GIMP, so whenever she's on the uh, laptop, it's Krita. And there have been some paper cuts, like trying to open a .psd file. Well, Ubuntu didn't automatically set Krita as the appropriate application to open when you double-click one of those. So I had to go in and set that for her. So, you know, that's a paper cut that really kind of gave her a sour impression. And also Krita just not being up to par with Photoshop, but what is. So, you know, in that case, I would call it a half and half, like half successful, in that she's still using it, and it's great for web browsing. But if she really needs to get something done in graphic artistry, she's going to reboot into Windows. I think you're right. The biggest successes that I've had, I think, have been when I kind of got over myself and realized that choosing Linux doesn't mean just using Linux. It means using the right tool for the right thing. So a lot of times I know people who are dual booting or they're running Linux in a VM or they've got more than one laptop. And, you know, when I go around and I do like the security conferences where we're doing capture the flag, it's great to see the person who's like, hold on a minute, let me pull this out, do what they need to do, then puts it away and uses the other tool. And maybe that's the solution is just telling people use what you need to use to get your job done. Of course, yeah. I would never be one of those zealots who says you have to use Linux for everything, even if that means major inconvenience in your life. I think use the tool that does the job for you. And if that happens to be a Mac or a Windows machine, then fine. Do what you want. And it, come to me if you want me to tell you how great Linux is, but I'm not going to like force it down your throat. 
trying to force it is the wrong approach because it's going to leave people with a bad impression of Linux if they're expecting one thing and get something else. And that's the kind of thing that keeps desktop Linux from moving forward. So I actually think the things that like elementary OS are doing, which is to make a distribution that's more acceptable to the masses and really has a good, strong design philosophy, I think that's very important. And I think it's moving things in the right direction. Yeah, there are some great distros like elementary who are trying to push things forward and do something a bit different. But I do always return to they are a smaller distro, the user base is smaller, therefore fewer bugs will be found and reported, and they just don't have that mainstream appeal of something like Ubuntu, where I know I can put someone on that, and the chances are it is going to just work. I mean, L, we tried to get you to use Ubuntu for how long? And you, you know, you said, oh no, I want to use this, and I want to use that, and then eventually we got you on Ubuntu, and you know, a few other hardware issues aside, it's generally been pretty solid, hasn't it? I mean, isn't that the key part, though, is a few other hardware issues aside? (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, I meant things that you've plugged into it, like uh, dodgy mics and interfaces and things. Um, But we have had issues with almost every distro I've tried. And, you know, how many times in one of our Linux hops have we said, well, it comes back to what hardware are you using? (laughs) Yeah, well, that's true. It does always come down to that and that's why ThinkPads are generally a good bet and if you're having problems with a wireless card you can usually change that out for an Intel one that's going to not give you any problems and obviously if you're Intel only then you're going to generally not have as many problems as if you've got an NVIDIA card or whatever but it is really hit and miss each machine is a unique set of components and your mileage is going to vary and so that that's why it always comes back to ThinkPads, right? That's just what the, the name you know in hardware that will work well with Linux. That's why both of you are sitting there looking at a ThinkPad right now. <laughs> well, yeah. And Joe, tell me, did you ever have an IBM ThinkPad? Ah, well, the one I talked about earlier is an IBM ThinkPad. That's how old it is. Yeah, I had an IBM one as well. That was my first real laptop, and I loved that thing to death. Well, the one that came with Windows 95, the A20M that I talked about, that is still working now. The battery is long dead. I think I got rid of it. But you plug that in, you boot up something like Poppy on it, works absolutely perfectly. And not to disparage Lenovo at all, I think they've been pretty good stewards for the ThinkPad line, but there's something about those old IBM ones that was just, uh, makes me warm inside. Well, we've been talking about this so long, I don't think we've got time to do distro hoppers, so Android x86 will have to wait until next time. And if you want to listen to that and all the future episodes, go to choose slash subscribe for all the ways to do that. And go to choose slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. And if you want to get in touch with us on Twitter, I'm at Drew of Doom. And I'm at L underscore O underscore punk at L O Punk. And I'm at Joe Ressington. We'll be back in two weeks. 